to the School Business Leadership Podcast. Today is another first for the show. Not only do we have our first roundtable discussion, this is also the first of a series of episodes. I've teamed up with Able Ed for a three-part series discussing the hot topics that SBLs are dealing with right now. This episode is part one, and we're talking about financial management in a post-COVID world. Is there such a thing as COVID-proof finances? We're digging into insurance, contracts, and lettings, as well as risk management, pupil numbers, and contingencies. Let's dive in. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Cheryl Campbell, Keme Aragundade, and Hasham Khan. Cheryl is CEO, founder of AbleEd, the Association of Bain Business Leaders in Education, who are committed to raising the profile of the SBL profession while specifically amplifying the voices of existing BAME SBLs and encouraging new entrants to the profession to create a more diverse workforce. She's worked in education since 2003 and is currently the School Business Finance and Operations Director at a secondary school in South East London. Kemi is a School Business Manager in a local authority primary school and has been in post for almost five years. Prior to that, she worked in higher education, undertaking roles including Senior Finance Assistant, Financial Operations Manager and Deputy Head of Income. She's also the Chief Operating Officer at AbleEd, working alongside Cheryl and is passionate about promoting diversity within the profession. Hasham has over 20 years experience across five local authorities as an SBL and was in the first cohort to successfully complete the CSBM and DSBM programmes. As one of the few BAME SBLs in the profession, Sham's career path has ranged from Chief Financial Officer in Academy Trusts to Chief Executive and Director of Learning of two school improvement companies. He's also an advisory panel member of AbleEd. Today, we're going to be diving into the topic of financial management post-COVID. But first of all, let's talk about AbleEd for those who aren't familiar. Cheryl, tell us about AbleEd. Well, AbleEd is now almost exactly one year old. And it came out of the Institute of School Business Leadership. They had a workforce survey that told us that there are less than 2% of business leaders in the UK who are from a Black, Asian or minority ethnic background. So the idea for AbleEd came from that, where we thought, actually, we need to do something to try and raise that percentage. So we're amplifying mm. the voices of current BAME SBLs, and we're just trying to highlight the profession to say, hey, this is a great profession. Let's have more people joining the profession. So that's really where we came from and what we're trying to do just by having a network where people can speak to each other, understand each other's experiences and have access to mentoring and to training and qualifications. So that's really what we're trying to do. But we are quite new at just one year old. But you've achieved so much in that year, though. I know you've got quite a few bursaries, haven't you? Yes, so we've got bursaries from um, a couple of companies that sponsor us. And the idea of that is to provide the bursary for people to undertake the um, aspiring school business leader qualification. And it's just a Mm. foot in the door. So just to get a taste of what you need to do to have that qualification. And then our very first bursary recipient, she's now gone on to start doing her CSBM. That's that's fantastic. So if anyone listening wants to get involved, whether you be a company or a school business leader or an aspiring school business leader, how can they support what you're doing? So you can support us by taking our membership. You can support us by offering your services as a mentor. You can support us by offering a bursary. Or you can you can just make contact and, and have a talk and see what's going on and just promote us as well. In many different ways. Have a look at our website and send us an email if you want to hear more. I was going to say you've got a website, haven't you? And they say there's a membership. What's involved in the membership? So the membership at, at the moment, we have a membership that is a 12 month membership, very, very reasonable in cost. 
And the membership means that you can have access to our forum. So we have a members only forum where you can go and seek advice. We also have access to mentors. You can sign up for um, six months mentoring and be eligible to apply for the bursaries as well. So that's included in the membership. And we are about to launch different tiers of membership. So that's coming very soon as well, where we have access to things through our website. So it's an exciting time to join. Absolutely. And can you just confirm the web address where people can find you? So it's www.abled.org. That's great. So anyone listening, go and check out the website. There's lots of exciting things happening and coming up as well. I think it's interesting what you said there as well, Cheryl, about the profession, because I know obviously there's clearly an issue in terms of ensuring that there's BAME school business leaders in the profession. Mm. But a few people I've spoken to on the podcast, raising the profile of the profession generally is a big task, isn't it? Absolutely. I think it's one of those professions that um, a lot of people don't realise it exists. So they just Mm -hmm. think of you as the lady in the office that collects the dinner money and have no idea. And I think even for all of us who are in the profession, before we came into it, we had no idea of the scope of the profession and actually how just being a profession in its own right. So the number of things, number of skills and and things that you really need to do this well. I think it's just something that needs to be amplified because there's not enough knowledge about what happens and what we do. Absolutely. I know many people, uh, me included, I fell into being a school business manager. Um, I had no idea that's what I would be or this is what I would still be doing even. So yeah, it's really important people know more about it. Yeah, and to understand that the leadership of the school is not just teaching colleagues. You know, school business leaders in their own right are school leaders. And it's really getting that message out there and and having people understand how integral we are to leading a school. And I'm really hopeful, and this kind of leads us on to what we're talking about today, is that, you know, given what's happened with COVID, the role of school business leader, I don't think has ever been more important. You know, we're talking about the finance side of things, but just across the whole spectrum. Absolutely. I think a lot of head teachers, I mean, how could a head teacher have got through COVID without their school business leader? Somebody had to be Mm. across all of that, be it finances, health and safety, premises. That's not the job of the teaching colleagues. The school business leader is absolutely key and has been Mm. absolutely key in getting schools through COVID with some sense of sanity at the end of it. Absolutely. Which leads us nicely onto our topic. So today we're talking about finance in a post-COVID world. So where are we starting? What are we actually going to cover today? So we're we're looking at finances and we're looking at operational considerations as well as some strategic considerations. So between the three of us, we'll hopefully get through some tips that we can share with, with people listening today. Okay, so we'll start with some operational tips. So obviously we have Kemi and Hasham as well. Who wants to go first? Where are we heading in terms of financial COVID proofing? I'll talk about income uh, to start with. Uh, and then we'll sort of talk talk more about the expenditure areas as well, because income is one of those areas which has been affected considerably by the pandemic and certainly over the last 12 months. Uh, and this was publicised yesterday on Sky News. It was a 10 minute piece on how maintained nurseries have been affected by the pandemic and the impact that it's had on their private income. But I know that mm. isn't uh, an isolated case and it has affected all schools that uh, receive private income. And I think one of the things that we're sort of paying particular and more attention to this year when we're setting budgets in both the maintained schools and in the academy sector as well is, you know, what sort of levels of private income should you be um, estimating for the next financial year for your budgets and beyond? 
It's things mm. like, uh, you know, the before and after school clubs. Uh, they've been hit quite a lot over the last 12 months, even to things like uh, school meals, music tuition, and the hiring of facilities as well. The hiring facilities mm. could be like things like, you know, you're letting us in your rooms or your, your astroturfs. And, uh, you know, the schools out there, especially in the secondary sector, that generate, you know, more than six figures of revenue income from just hiring out their astroturf. And those schools have been affected uh, along with mm. others. Have you been speaking with schools about what they're doing to mitigate that loss or recover it in some way? Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's very, I'd say there's no sort of one silver bullet to, to solve the mm. uh, you know the whole thing and it, it very much depends on the context of the school what type of school and what their commercial setup is as well I mean every yeah. school is, is different there even things like school trips you know the income on those on school trips has been uh, pretty much non-existent over the last 12 months so it depends how extensive how vast the commercial activities of those schools is, you know is in terms of income, obviously, we've got a loss with income. In terms of expenditure, have they managed to recover any of, or have some schools managed to make any savings at all, or have they just spent on other things? There are areas where schools haven't spent in the last 12 months. I don't know, Kemi or Shell, have you got any examples on those? Where we've underspent is in the area of, uh, you mentioned trips. We haven't been able to go ahead with our year six residential trip, for example. We were lucky enough to be able to receive a refund for what we originally paid as a deposit for that trip. But in turn, we had to then refund the parents uh, who had already made their deposit payments. Another area where we have made savings is with supply staffing. So due to the pandemic, we took the decision not to take on any additional staff in the event of an absence of a staff member that's already contracted at the school. So, for example, for school bubble, if we had to close a school class bubble, the staff would arrange for home learning and work from home to be able to facilitate the teaching and learning. Whereas pre-COVID, we would, uh, if there was an illness of a, you know, a teacher was off sick, for example, we would book a supply teacher to cover their absence. So, so we, we, in the area of, sort of supply, we've been able to, to make a little bit of savings there. But that mm. sort of has to balance that with the the cost of the sort sort of the additional costs that we've incurred as a result of the pandemic as well. So in one hand we've been able to save, but on the other there were costs that were unforeseen that we've had to incur as well. So moving forward, if we're looking at both income and expenditure, what are the learning points that you would suggest schools take away in terms of protecting themselves for the future? Should anything, you know, touch wood, I am touching wood that you know anything like this doesn't happen again. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we, when we were discussing this in one of our able-led meetings, is ensuring that um, schools uh, refer to their risk registers. You know, if they have one in place, review it and see if it needs updating. And uh, if they don't have one in place, maybe you know, this is a time to, to sort of put one together. I know with, uh, with Academy Trusts, they must have one, but um, it's also considered good practice for local authority maintained schools to have one in place too. Um, so a risk register is essentially a log of key events that could negatively impact the school and its strategic aims. Um, as a main school, I have to admit, I didn't have one in place. Um, but when I saw the benefits of actually looking at 
putting one in place and, and really having a closer look at what the risks are and how we kind of mitigate these so that we're not sort of caught off guard again, so to speak. Um, I had a look at putting one together and I sort of saw that there were five steps that you could follow in order to put the risk register together. And the first thing, identifying the risks. So define it, give it a category, for example, financial or operational. The second step would be to measure that risk. So give the risk a rating of either high, medium or low. The next would be to manage the risk. So detail in your plans um, how you plan to control or mitigate those risks. Then you go on to the fourth step, which is monitoring the risk. Review it whenever something happens that affects the way you plan to mitigate that risk or the risk itself. And then lastly, report it. Share that register with the board of governors or, you know, or your trust board and do that at least once a year or more during the periods of heightened risk. And so in, mm. those, in following those steps, it was able, we were able to sort of look and see where the risks were clearly and, and also maybe it helped to prioritise how we were going to tackle each one. I'm in a maintained school also, and I, I think like Kemi, I previously didn't have a risk register, and I'm not sure how common they are in maintained schools. But I was very lucky that when I joined my school, which was only six months before the first lockdown, when I joined my school, I inherited a risk register from my predecessor. So that was really useful in that all the risk had been put into the budget areas, and I was able mm -hmm. to use that in my monitoring as the year went along to see how much risk there was if it had reduced depending on how far we were through the financial year. So that it was such a good exercise for me. But it's something that absolutely, like Kemi, I think it's, it's invaluable. And I would keep going forward and, and review a risk register every year just to make sure that's in place. In terms of the risk register, Cheryl, um, you said you inherited that from a previous business manager and it was kind of detailed in terms of finance. I think in maths, it's normally strategic risk, isn't it? But at school level, we're talking about detailed operational risk. What kind of financial risks are we talking about at a school level? On my risk register, it has things like the risk of not being able to to recruit. So there's an element that's added in if we can't recruit, which means our supply costs will go up, for example. So things like that mm. are specifically put into the budget. And as we go through the year, so if we're getting further to the end of the year, I can say, right, well, that risk is now reduced because we've got this much time left. So that's the way my, my financial risk register has been set up. And I think that's that's a really useful way to go through with your budget monitoring. And so you can have a more accurate way when you look at the end of the year to see you forecast that you're going to have this much balance. And suddenly you get to the end of the year, none of the risks have happened. And suddenly, you know, you've got all this money there. So it's, I do use it as I go along, but it's definitely useful to have at the start of the year. And it helps just to soften those unforeseen things that may happen during the year. I like that because I say something that I'm familiar with in terms of a method because I say adding contingency costs basically into your budget, but being actually codifying it into a risk register and then looking at it as you go through the year as part of your budget monitoring, I think is a great model. And I think it kind of follows into Sham's point in terms of the income. You know, what would happen if you couldn't get your income in for that month that you were forecasting? Yeah, absolutely. So we've covered income and expenditure. Are there any other operational risks that we've not covered in detail? I think with expenditure, one of the, the sort of new things that we've been introducing this year, certainly in the schools I've been working in, is how to become more emotionally aware of staff well-being, because that does impact on when you set a budget. Most schools use the approach, you know, the curriculum-led curriculum approach to setting budgets. 
I understand that's probably not the approach that smaller schools use, but certainly, you know, if you've got school three, three, four mentoring and bigger, they tend to use the curriculum-led approach. But it's how much of the human element we now involve in structuring the staff, uh, knowing, you know, which staff do, do which, teach which classes, how many staff we need, uh, because we do need to become, to be more, be more sort of emotionally aware of the, the mental well-being of staff and what they've been through over the last 12 months and how that's going to impact you know, for example, if staff members got um, suffering from poor mental health and you put them in year six, you don't want to put too much pressure on them. And maybe it might be better to have a shuffle round where you are sort of uh, not sort of lightening the load, but just just considering staff mental well-being uh, and being being you know responsive to that. And as a caring employer, I think that's uh, something that's really important we, we do when we set budgets. So we are sort of moving towards more of a sort of business stroke wellbeing approach to when we are setting budgets, uh, as well as a curriculum-led approach as well. I agree with that completely because it's like you say, you know, I always say numbers need narrative and narrative needs numbers. And it's easy to do your curriculum financial plan in terms of numbers on a page, people in rooms, bodies and headcounts and all of that. Like I say, the nuance of the kind of human element in terms of, you know, this person is really good with this kind of class, this pupil profile, or, you know, this person is good with these kind of, you know, students or with this area, or they've had a difficult year, we'll move them into this area for now because they need some support. That kind of thing really needs to take place more often, I think. Definitely. In terms of the mental health element of staff, and I think Kemi touched on this in terms of supply as well and, and the impact of that, how can schools build all of that in in terms of risk looking after your staff and and mitigating that going forward well i think we recognize that the pandemic's had a massive impact on, on schools and also their budgets starting in particular it's it's taking its toll for a number of us were in, were in deficit even before the pandemic and um some had even small surpluses before the pandemic but a, a lot of us had large amounts of self-generated income that we weren't able to to generate this time round, and most schools incurred additional costs for cleaning. So there, there are so many factors that that come into play here. But I do think that you know, like Christian said, staff well-being is something that is under the spotlight at the moment, and, and rightly so. Schools need to really take that into consideration. I think when when setting their budgets and and not only considering staff absences, the staff mm. absence insurance policy, but also how you support staff. I know at my school, we were looking um, at buying into uh, some sort of wellbeing package with our HR provider. Um, they they provide it as a sort of add-on, but it's our benefits that were listed in this package just sounded like exactly what our staff would need right now, which is, you know, access to being able to speak to someone not necessarily mm. in school, but maybe out of school and, and being able to just offload maybe. And, you know, staff may feel it's easier to speak to somebody that's not within their organisation and be able to be more open. And I think that's, a, that's one of the main things that I think in terms of working in a school and the pressures involved, um, just being able to, to have your voice heard. Yeah, those things, you know, think packages like that come at cost, but I think they'll be money well spent, particularly this time round. Yeah, the, the last 12 months have been unusual, unprecedented and all the other words that people have described them as. And I think investing in your staff has probably never been more important than it is now in terms of well-being, 
and just everyone kind of getting through it. You know, we're all in this together. We're all trying to find a way through it and we're all trying to to learn from it and take away from everything that, that's happened, I think. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, when you have staff that are well and happy and, and, and mentally healthy, they are in the best position to then be able to, to teach take care of the children. And, and fun- yeah. that's, that's why... Um, you know, that's our fundamental aim in the school to make sure that we are providing an environment whereby the children can thrive, that they're happy, that they're safe, and that they're learning. And for staff to be able to deliver that, they need to have good mental health. So it's it's definitely an important investment that schools or schools, I think, should consider implementing. Yeah, we need safe and happy staff to have safe and happy children. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Okay, is there anything else operationally that we've not touched on? I think Kemi uh, touched on staff insurance just slightly there. And I think it's definitely, it's one of those, one of the many sort of SLAs that's, that schools may buy into. And it's definitely worth checking the clauses on those SLAs because I bet your bottom dollar, there's probably quite a lot that's changed in this sort mm. of COVID or post-COVID era on those contracts. And there's nothing worse than sort of buying into a contract and realising when the event happens that you're not covered. Um, so it's definitely worth checking to see that the cover is what you need as a school. Uh, you know, does it give you the right cover? And, and if it doesn't, then, you know, you can always ask the insurance companies whether they can extend the cover or you can buy like a premium type cover to make sure you are fully covered in the areas um, that you want to be covered in. Yeah, I think it was um, Lorraine on the procurement episode of the podcast. She said that the work that she'd been doing, people were adding pandemic clauses into their contracts now. So it's definitely worth checking because it might be something you wouldn't normally look at. I mean, I suppose most of us will now, but, you know, it's best to check before you sign anything. (laughs) Many schools, they self-insure. So I think this is a lot of the conversation I've I've had with other school leaders has been about whether that's still appropriate to try and self-insure or or is this the time Mm. to switch to getting a comprehensive insurance thinking ahead to how much absence will happen in the next year. Obviously, we can't predict, but is self-insuring still still the way to go? Is that is that something that can still cover your school's needs? And again, I suppose it's sitting down and doing that financial planning and looking at the financial yeah. risk like you were talking about, Cheryl. You know, I suppose it gets to a point through the year, doesn't it, where you know exactly what kind of costs you're going to incur, but who can ever predict the supply costs? It's understanding the profile of your school. So do you have a high number of staff with young children who then will have may have to take time off because their child's bubble is closed which you yeah. know these things we'd never have to think about beforehand but it's you know there's also long covid have you got members of staff who have, are suffering from long covid where it's not just the usual winter cold and they have a week off but it's something that's ongoing and they may need extra support so it's understanding the profile of your of your school staff and seeing what's appropriate for your particular school like I say, maybe looking at it in ways that we haven't looked at it before, because I think we've all got a whole new vocabulary, haven't we? You know, beyond the you're on mute when we're all in Zoom meetings, you know, we're talking about things like long COVID and bubbles and all these kind of things that we'd never even considered before. You know, so operationally trying to respond to that is a whole new way of looking at the world, isn't it? I think, yeah. I mean, that's just, just again, what Shell's just said. Uh, I think the whole, you know, the last 12 months is going to probably change, not transform, but change the way the insurance industry operates uh, and if you think yeah. about you know you get have some people who, who will have a vaccine some who won't they've already talked about vaccine passports i can see that creeping into staff insurance and there may be clauses in there that say well you know staff members need to have had a covid jab uh, and if if not then it might invalidate the insurance 
I think, you know, we're still, still not there yet with seeing what policies are going to look like. And I think they will still, I think the insurance industry itself is still going to take time to adjust to this sort of new climate that, that they're operating mm. within. But I think there will be changes in the way insurance co- companies operate, definitely. Yeah, and I think not just staff insurance, but also trip insurance. So, you know, I had a, a real time trying to sort out insurance for my trips that I had booked. I had several trips that were due to go abroad and I had to one by one put claims in for each of those. And it was, it was an, an intense process. And luckily for me, all my claims were agreed, but not before having to put through a lot, a lot of um, evidence about if whether we'd cancelled the trip, whether it was not able to go ahead because of COVID and having to balance that with, parents anxieties of being able to say right this trip is cancelled and not cancelling it too early because you knew the insurance then wouldn't pay out so it was quite tricky but insurance companies I mean this is new territory for them as well and they're just trying to understand how they can cover themselves for trips that couldn't go ahead and when we looked at a quote for the new year ahead I mean our our trip insurance quote has has tripled so it's about how how we can safely start doing trips again and whether we can afford the insurance to do that yeah. Another item for the risk register. I thought I also think that um, catering as well has taken a hit. You know, we, we were talking about catering contracts earlier and that the importance of looking at the last 12 months and, and the particular strain that it's had on um, private providers, for example, where the food is sourced from. It's also, you know, that's had a hit in terms of Brexit and the impact that's had on sourcing food and the cost effectiveness and the the delivery of, of food. I know everyone's sort of had lots of fun with the free school meal voucher mm-hmm. provision over the last few months. But beyond that, I think it's a good time to take a look at your catering model and how it's shaped post-COVID. Um, is there too much staffing? Is there not enough staffing? Have furlough opportunities been sought by the provider? And has that been passed on? You know, have any savings been passed on to the school if you're buying into an outsourced catering provision? So many things come into play when it comes to, to catering. And I think that's also an area to, to keep an eye on over the next 12 months. I think especially for those who are now um, renewing their catering contracts. And so catering contracts now are likely to have a clause in there about school closure periods and how that's dealt with. Because catering companies will want to safeguard you know, their, their staffing. They'll want to be able to safeguard their profits as much as possible. So they will start introducing clauses about school closure periods as well. It's important to, like we said before, to make sure we really read these clauses because contracts will be different to to what we're used to. So in terms of operational, we've covered income, expenditure, staff insurance, catering, trip insurance. Moving into the strategic now, have we got any strategies to do that kind of budget review that we talked about and that financial risk assessment? Well, we have. Well, we've come up at Abled with a very uh, quick win. We have we've come up with a ratio, and we've called this the Abled ratio because we believe we are the first people to actually invent this. <laughs> so we're claiming the oh. trademark. <laughs> but how the Abled, what the Abled ratio does, it actually builds on some of the ratios that are out there. And interestingly, this isn't one of the twelve metrics that the DfE uses, but we've we've tested it within our schools as as uh, SBLs. And it's actually worked to great effect. And I think it's going to be a particular use in uh, multi-academy trusts when you compare different schools with each other. So how the ABLED ratio works is 
again, it's a very, very simple formula. You can literally do it on the back of a, a stamp, this kind of calculation. All it does, it takes your overall grant funding that you receive as a school. So that would be things like your, you know, your gag funding, pupil premium, that kind of thing. Uh, and then you divide it by your overall grant funding plus your private income. But what that does, right. it gives you a percentage ratio. Uh, for example, if you've got grant funding of £950,000, but your overall grant funding plus private income is a million pounds, that would give you a ratio of 95%. And what that does, it actually gives you a measure of your exposure to the commercial sector. So if you've got a high percentage, that means you have you know, a small, proportionately a small amount of private income coming into your school, which means in the event of another pandemic, you have got some financial protection there, some resilience within your ratio. But if your percentage is, is low, that means you've got a lot of private income coming in. That means your exposure within a pandemic is quite high. And again, the, the beauty of this is that you can do that kind of analysis for, for different schools within the multi-academy trust. For example, if you've got 10 different sets, sets of ABLED ratios, you can see which schools are financially at most risk. And when you are coming to planning the budgets, you can factor income assumptions within those budgets to minimise the risk as well. I love that. That is a great calculation. I love a good formula, but I love that because it just quantifies it. It's one figure and it tells you everything you need to know straight away. Yeah, it's, it's it's yeah, like you say, it's it's it does what it says on the tin. It's so simple to work out, and I tell you, if I can work it out, anybody can work it out. It's interesting, like you say, a lot of schools vary in terms of their reliance on private income. And I worked with a school, I think, a couple of years ago, and they were very reliant on private income. And I said to them, you know, I don't know what scenario we're talking about, but what happens next month if all that went away? How would you how would you cope? How would you function? And they didn't have an answer. Mm. So this kind of formula, I think, is very good, especially, like I say, for governance and for looking at financial risk and quantifying it in a very clear way. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. For governance, it's such a powerful tool. And, you know, at gov you know, board meetings, governors' meetings, you don't have an awful lot of time. And it's really important to get those key KPIs and metrics across in an easy, understandable format. And this is what this ratio does it gets it to the you know governors to decision makers gives it to them in a very simple format but the best thing about this is very easy to understand and um i yeah. think as well like kemi said it's something we can add to the strategic risk register as well yeah because so from a governor's point of view and you know, we're all talking about finance, we're all very familiar with the budgets and all the budget headings, but you can get lost in all the numbers. So sometimes just mm. having one number that tells you a lot is important, like you say, straight for governance. It is this. Now we need to make a decision. What's it telling us and what we're going to do about it? Straightforward. Yeah. And um, I was I was working on something the other day where we were doing this for a group of nine schools. And what we did is we mapped it onto almost like a, you know, like the uh, spider's web diagram where it pulls off uh, yeah. different directions. And we mapped each school's uh, ABLEG ratio on there. And then we did an average for the trust as well. So you could see, you know, where you were in comparison to the schools. Are you below average? Are you above average? Uh, you know, are you, is there a potential risk in your school? Are you ex financially exposed? Uh, but it also, you know, to show you the schools where maybe they aren't making the most of their commercial opportunities as well. So it's, it is, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a useful tool, whichever way you look at it. 
And you can also set tolerances, can't you, and targets based on that figure. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the DFE love that type of thing. It's uh, it's ideal. I'm going to tell everyone I know about this now. Obviously, I will promote this podcast, but anyone who talks to me about risk and finance, I will quote this now. You do know that. <laughs> There's one strategy. Uh, what is another strategy we can look at to mitigate risk financially? It's budgeting 101, but having a contingency that is actually suitable for your school. So not just rolling over the same contingency figure year after year, but actually assessing that contingency and as I say, I look at my risk as the year goes through and I look at whether that contingency is appropriate for the things that I have said could be a risk. So it, it is a subjective area because it depends on the school's circumstances, but it has to be appropriate. So, you know, in, in, in my primary school, I had a contingency, I think it was 25,000. And obviously in a secondary school, my contingency is far higher. But it's thinking about what is that contingency there for, not just to satisfy your governors that you've got an amount set aside, but it will be able to cover us if X, Y, and Z happens. So I think contingency is not just an automatic year on year rolling over the same figure, but actually assessing what that contingency could cover should the need arise. So looking at things like, you know, if your role suddenly fell, you know, and you lose, you lose that funding, would you have a contingency to help with that? In terms of that contingency figure, Cheryl, I know everyone will do this differently, but do you look at each area of the budget and come up with the figure and then add it together and that's the contingency? Or do you do like a percentage of your income, for example? How do you get to that final figure? Mine is um, using my, my financial risk register that I inherited. So there is a financial figure for key areas in the budget that I use and say, based right. on these metrics, I should have a contingency of at least this much. So I say people might do it differently, but there are, yeah. basically you need to look at your budget and look at each area and say, what if the worst happened? What is a sensible figure to put aside? Yeah. Kemi, do you do anything like this? Have you got that kind of financial risk in that detail? Yeah, we're, we're also building a contingency where we're able to. You know, some schools may not have, you know, if you're looking at a deficit budget, for example, you may not be able to afford to spare that money to put on a contingency line. Mm. I know some schools that maybe put a, a small percentage on each budget line just to account for any increases in, in, in costs. And um, that's one way that they try and sort of plan for the unforeseen increase in, in a particular cost. But yeah, if you're lucky enough to, to be able to build in a contingency in your budgets, it's definitely worth having a look at. For example, like Cheryl mentioned, falling roles. I know that you know, quite a few local authorities are seeing pupil numbers decrease in their areas and that is going to impact mm. schools you know funds on seats means you know more funding and if your people roll numbers are declining that is going to hit the budget and making sure you've you've got a plan in place where you can remain financially sustainable is really important on the flip side i know that some schools are have incurred surplus balances at the end of the financial year because they maybe have spent less over the last 12 months on catering, exam fees, utilities, supply costs, like I mentioned earlier, um, and the list could go on. So I think it's important to just check your carry forward and how that compares to any policies that you've got in place in terms of the balances that, you, that you're looking at and whether or not there is a risk of that any money is being clawed back. Some LAs have a policy whereby they will claw back over a certain amount um, or percentage 
So um, you've got to ask yourself, is that carry forward also a risk? It almost feels like when we talk about budget setting, you know, you've got zero-based budgeting and incremental budgeting, haven't you? And I feel like everyone's going back to zero-based budgeting because you can't take last year or even this year as a representative year, can you? So when you're looking at the next three years, you just can't make any assumptions. That's right. Yeah, it's a balance that really, isn't it? Because on one hand, you've got, you know, if you've got some money left over at the end of the financial year, brilliant. But, you know, it doesn't stop there. You've got to really couple that with, right, I've got next year, the next three years I need to budget for. How far will this stretch? Will we have enough to be able to still stay in a surplus situation come three years' time? And you're constantly having to review, aren't you, to make sure that you're not you're not falling short when it comes to, to setting your budgets. But it's it's so difficult because we know that schools have, um, even pre-COVID, have had funding cuts and have had to deal with the impacts of that, um, let alone the, the additional impacts of COVID and what that's had on, on the budgets. So, yeah, it's a, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a balancing scale that you're going to have to try and see where, where the middle ground is in all of this. The thing that stood out for me this year is the additional grants that we get. And under me being really clear about where those additional grants are spent, just in case the government decides to stop paying those grants. So, for example, we had the um, year seven catch up funding that is paid to secondary schools year after year. And of course, I had budgeted for that for the next three years in my three year plan. And this year they decided not to pay that anymore, but to give a COVID catch up premium instead. And so for me, it's just understanding if particular grants were to be cut, how would I react to that? What things could I still absorb into the budget and what things would I have to cut because that, that grant is, is no longer forthcoming? And that, that's been a learning, learning lesson for me is to make sure I have a clear understanding. And I know that we have to report on pupil premium and exactly how that's spent and the sports grant and exactly how that's spent. But it's just that next step of saying, this may not be here next year. We have to be prepared to either absorb it or not not follow through on the things that we say we were going to do. So that that's been a real key lesson for me is looking at those grants in isolation to really sort of prepare for the government saying we're no longer doing that grant this year because we have to provide for something else. I think Cheryl uh, raises a really good point there actually, and it's it, it's sort of it's around the uh, topic of uh, year end because. You know, if you if you're lucky enough to have a, a you know a carry forward at the end of you know this this financial year, how do you how do you split that carry forward? Because it's likely to be made up of things like you know sport premium, pupil premium. I think they've announced that the catch up funding can be carried forward. But if you've got a surplus balance mechanism within your local authority that claws back balances over a certain percentage. I think SBLs need to be clear on what how they separate specific grants away from the other school funding uh, that, 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 that mm. the school has. And for academy trusts as well, it's worth checking things like, you know, the statements of delegation, the reserves policy to see what levels of, you know, brought forward balances are, are allowed. And because, you, you know, you could end up being in a position that if you don't unpick your carry forward, and, you know, say, well, but this is sport print, this is pure print, this is that, this is that. 
you could end up having clawbacks on, you know, some of those, you know, those specific grants. And when it comes to reporting to the DfE and to Ofsted as well, schools could end up being in a bit of a sticky position there. Also, I think like we're talking about these grants and I don't think before we would have even thought about it, you know, not on the scale we're talking about it now. But with the teaching and learning needs that people are talking about what the children will need coming back, you know, they've been out of school for a period of time. I know they've done remote learning, but how are schools going to address that and, and kind of fill those gaps? Yeah, I mean, the demand, the needs are going, are definitely going to be more. I mean, <clears throat> there was the, the big change just before Christmas wasn't there in the way pupil premium um, is going to be uh, calculated this financial year. And even small... Yeah adjustments like that have such a rippling and big impact on like you say people teaching and learning well-being because potentially you know there's a lot less money that's going to be distributed to schools this financial year and it will correct itself in the following year but this year in the middle of a pandemic um, I'm going to be a bit controversial here it was completely the wrong time to put that policy into practice because of the impact that it's having on schools. Absolutely and we can't rule out, like Cheryl was saying, more changes. We can't predict the future, but I think we've all agreed that things are going to change and they might not all be in our favour. In fact, they'll likely not be in our favour. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, and I think where previously I was I was pretty confident that, you know, pupil premium would be around forever. Now I, I don't feel the same way and I am sort of mentally preparing that any of these grants could be announced to cease at any time. So I'm less confident of, of going forward exactly what's going to be there. A bit more cautious. Which leads us roundly back to financial risk management, staffing, you know, curriculum, staff wellbeing. You know, we're, we're about to see what starts out as a change in one area has the ripple effects beyond the finances in other areas, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is, I mean, for me, this is where it's so important that school business leaders are involved in every aspect of the conversation and where some head teachers might think school business leaders are roundly just to do with finance, that affects every part of the school. So you are having those conversations. Yeah. The school business leader understanding that roles will be falling is now having that conversation with head teachers about how things could be structured differently. In a small primary school, that might be the difference between having two year one classes or a mixed group year one and two class, which, you know, normally you'd think, right, that's a curriculum thing, nothing to do with me. But actually, It all stems from the budget. And these are the conversations that business leaders need to be involved in as well. And though finance isn't the whole entirety of a school business leader job, every decision made in a school, no matter what way you track it, ends up back at the budget sheet, doesn't it? Absolutely. I don't think there's anything that doesn't affect the school business leader's role. So assuming, like you say, I've sat in meetings where they've said, oh, we're just talking about teaching and learning. And don't get me wrong, some of it isn't relevant to me and I just nod. But generally I'm thinking, no, I need to have that context because when I'm sat looking at the figures, that will inform what I do or what I recommend that we do or don't do. Absolutely. And I mean, a, a prime example is that with the disruption that we've had for pupils ending primary school and, and transitioning into secondary school, there's been a um, significant lack in data So pupils didn't get to do their SATs at the end of year six. That information didn't transfer across to secondary schools. So many secondary schools now are looking at ways to do testing, to do baseline testing. And that obviously Mm. has a financial impact. We're now looking at instead of doing year seven testing only, year seven, year eight, year nine, potentially, to get that baseline to understand where they are. And that's another cost. It's not just a teaching and learning conversation. 
And of course, there's other things going on outside of our schools and even outside of our communities that's going to affect us as we move forward, isn't there? Yes, and I think that's where it comes round to, you know, we usually would have our business continuity plan and traditionally we look at if the school burns down, how can we carry on? If there's a flood, how can we carry on? But in light of COVID, I think we have to have a financial business continuity plan. So what happens if, and a bit like the risk register, but, you know, how can we how can we survive? There are things, again, outside of our community. We've got more and more families who are in need. We have the, you know, we had lots of campaigns going on about providing laptops, providing the internet, and that's not things we would usually have been involved in. But those are community yeah. issues that now schools have to be thinking about because you have to be able to give access to your pupils. You know, every school had to have a home learning policy and be ready to roll out remote learning. But, you know, we had yeah. to then have a better focus on do they have laptops? Do they have the internet? Do the families have the skills to be able to do this? And so it, so there are a lot more community issues that affected us this time around as well. And I suppose there are things that we might have put in place, which we've, you know, everyone's looking at learning points. What do we want to keep doing? What do we want to stop doing? How do we want to change things? So if we put these things in place and we're given internet access and laptops, are we going to carry on funding that? How can we do that? How can we create the funding to provide those things? Yeah, and that's a difficult one because, you know, we had the DfE rolling out laptops and they were for pupil premium students. And what we found is that it wasn't just the pupil premium students who couldn't afford it. There were other families who yeah. weren't quite pupil premium. Although they had a laptop, it was one laptop in the household for, for four or five siblings. Or it was one laptop for the parents to use for work as well as the siblings. So it's not just about pupil premium. There's this greater need that the school now needs to have a focus on what's going on to be able to understand their school community. Yeah, because when we're talking about risk and financial, we're talking about what if this happens and responding to the, the situation in that moment, where actually what we've just been through has probably created and determined a whole new way of working and a whole new culture of, of teaching and learning in ways that we might address some of these issues just as a matter of course. Many schools that I've spoken to are making the decision about whether they want to incorporate into their policy that we will make sure every year seven has a laptop going forward. You know, some mm. sixth form centres are saying, is this the way we now spend our bursary? Some schools do that already. Some schools use a sixth form bursary for books, whereas now we think about, is it more important to actually make sure that every student has that laptop they can use at home rather than having to rely on the study centre within the school? So it's a different focus now. Our priorities have completely shifted and that comes back to, I think, obviously, I think schools will be rewriting their school development plans for the next three years as well as the budgets. Definitely. Um, I mean, if you look at things like uh, the, I think the four big things at the moment are, you know, Brexit, the falling birth rate, the pandemic, and, you know, the sufficiency data out there as well that local authorities hold about where surplus places are within uh, within uh, local, local authorities. And it's almost like a perfect storm. And one of the things mm. I wrote down just uh, just before this podcast was how to stay one step ahead and it's about like you say Laura it's about planning for fall in roll that kind of thing because I think that's going to be the next big thing now and already within the um, schools that I work in we've got many schools which are experiencing falling roll and if you look at the national data it isn't going to get any better uh, so it's going to it's, yeah. it's a real challenge 
for schools going forwards. And what I would encourage schools to do as soon as they can at the next available opportunity is to get get hold of the local authorities policy on falling role funding as well, because it is a, mm. a limited pot, which I think is top slides from the DSG. But get hold of that policy because it does differ from local authority to local authority. And there is very strict criteria uh, that you have to um, adhere to in order to get that funding. So if you are experiencing mm. falling role or you think, you know, that's potentially what's going to happen in the future, I'd say get in there early because I think the ones that get in there early will have more chance to sort of digest the data and, you know, put in their, make, have their say, make their claim for that, you know, that all-important funding. In terms of, you know, we started this podcast with, you know, is there a such thing as COVID-proof finances? I think we've kind of said ish. <laughs> have we said ish? <laughs> well, well, I, I wrote, uh, I actually put, I wrote down yes, no, and possibly. Uh, so ish <laughs> ish definitely that's a better word actually i like it. i think that's the general consensus ish yeah i agree with that <laughs> there are things that we can do to mitigate but much of it is out of our control so basically it's polishing the crystal balls isn't it and saying what are our best guesses what assumptions can we make and how can we be protecting ourselves and when we talk about a risk register you know we talk about risk appetite don't we when we're looking at risk you know, policies and methodology, how risky do we want to be? I think schools will probably not be very risk-friendly at all at the moment. Although we've talked uh, quite a lot about risks today, it's also important to acknowledge that there is support out there, that there are support mechanisms in place to support schools if they are facing deficits or if they're not unsure how to go about tackling these risks. Obviously, putting together a risk register is the first step to identifying what those are and seeing what you can do as a school to mitigate them. And um, Hush mentioned earlier, the, um, there are local authorities that have a falling roles policy that schools can access. There's also the wonderful world of um, Twitter, whereby some schools mm. have been in a deficit position and, and have been able to turn that around and reaching out and networking with other school business leaders and seeing how they've been able to, to mitigate some of the risks. Um, I mentioned earlier that some maintained schools, they, they might not have a risk register in place. Um, but having put one together, they may not know where to start and how to go about addressing these. Whereas you have other schools who have experience in, in putting these things together and tackling them and, and, and are quite happy to share how they've gone about that. So, yes, there are there are loads of risks to consider, um, but don't forget that there is support out there to help schools in terms of how to address them. And, and, and yeah, reach out to somebody, reach out to experienced business leaders to your LAs and, and get on Twitter and see if there is anyone out there that um, is able to support and, and give some advice. Absolutely. And I'm a great advocate of, of mentoring. So if you can sign up for a mentor, it doesn't have to be a long-term relationship, but you can seek a mentor for a specific skill. So you may just want to have a mentor to better increase your knowledge about budgeting, forecasting. So that's something where you could get help just for that particular thing. How can I address risk within my budget? How can I address risk within my school? So look at those specific things that you can address. At Ableg, we are able to help with, with that with our members. So we can offer mentorship within um, the membership community. Um, so do get in touch with us if there is, if we've mentioned anything today that you think actually I could do with some support with that. We do have the 
resources to be able to help and support. So please do get in touch. I don't think there's any other profession that supports each other like school business leaders. And every time I've recorded an episode of this podcast, we talk about this. It is a lonely role, but we are not alone. So yes, I completely agree. You know, reach out. There are so many networks out there. Speak to Able Ed. You know, they say speak to local authorities. Just put a question out on Twitter. You know, everyone is willing to help. We, we're all in it together, even if we're not sat in the same room. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I agree with that 100%. So final thoughts, if we can sum up what we've covered today, what are the three, say, top three takeaways that you'd like to leave people with? Okay, so the, the top three takeaways really link into sort of mantra of, of this podcast, really, which is to stay one step ahead. And SBLs are incredibly, incredibly brilliant at doing that in, in their role. And the easiest way to remember this is the acronym ARC, A-R-C. So the A stands for ABLED ratio. If you haven't done the ABLED ratio, please do it because I think it will tell you a lot about the, um, the the exposure to financial risk for your particular setting. The R stands for risk. You know, strategic risk registers. Make sure you have those. If you haven't got one in place, put one in place. Uh, but make sure you update that with things like your three-year projections, which are now. Uh, I believe, are mandatory before the end of June if you're mm. a maintained school. So, and be clear on the assumptions that you put into your strategic risk register. And then the C stands for contracts. And it's you know, the last 12 months has told us that it's actually a particularly good time to review all contracts, purely because there's going to be a lot of additional clauses that are in there that haven't been in there before. And the last thing you want to be as a school is to be caught out by, by a clause that you weren't aware of. So it's definitely worth reviewing those contracts, reviewing the, the small prints, especially the clauses as well. So ARC is mm. uh, is probably the best three sort of tip takeaway that I'd, uh, I'd say. So it's not education if there's no acronyms. So we've got an acronym now. We have ARC. <laughs> we have. <laughs> okay. So if anyone wants to find you individually, I'm going to ask you now, where are your Twitter accounts? Where can people find you? Okay. So I am on Twitter. And my Twitter handle is very easy. It's my name. So it's at Cheryl SBM. I'm also available on Twitter. Um, you can slide into my DMs. My Twitter handle is at Kemi underscore Arrow. That's at K-E-M-I underscore A-R-O. And my Twitter tag is very simple. It's at the first SBM. So we know where you live now on Twitter. So I expect people to come and find you and follow you because I promote SBL Twitter on every episode of this podcast now. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been a real adventure, I think. It's the first roundtable panel discussion that we've done and I've really enjoyed it. And I think we've gone all over the show, haven't we? We've gone from finance to staff wellbeing to, to acronyms to everything. No, thank you for having us as well. It's been re really uh, interesting, really exciting to be a part of the podcast. Yeah, Laura, thank you so much for having us. Um, happy to be part of your very first Roundtable podcast. This is uh, really exciting. Thank you. If you'd like to continue the conversation about anything you've heard in today's episode, you can find all of our contact details in the show notes on my website at www.ljbusinessofeducation.co.uk. Also, make sure you check out the Able Ed website at www.abled.org. That's A-B-B-L-E-D. We'd love to hear from you, so do tag us on social media and let us know what you think of the episode. Remember, this show is available in all of the podcast directories, 
Just make sure you hit the subscribe button in your chosen podcast player so you don't miss an episode. Also, if you're listening to this podcast on an Apple device and you like what you've heard, it would be great if you could rate and review the show as it makes it easier for others to find it. You can rate and review the show by clicking on the show in the Apple Podcast app, scrolling to the bottom and either tapping the stars to rate and or selecting write a review. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week. Thank you.